So a lot of the times, the way that we, and when I say we, I mean, you know, Africans, both on the continent and throughout the diaspora, the way that we talk about sex and sexuality often seems very conservative and very restrictive, like it's coming from a very, you know, limited mindset. But the thing is, a lot of those thoughts and things that we say and ideals that we hold so tightly aren't actually ours. They're ideals and thoughts and approaches that have been put on us through various factors and various influences. And I think that collectively, you know, diaspora and those on the continent, we need to start, you know, having conversations, maybe even doing some deeper learning, deeper researching and reflecting to develop our own ideals, thoughts and understanding on sex and sexuality. But what do I know? I'm very much aware that I'm the newest member of this household. I know that I'm the one who's supposed to figure out a way to fit in and that I should be grateful that they have allowed me to come into their lives. I started out expecting there to be kindness between the wives. We're all women from this continent. Yes, we have different levels of privilege, but we all live in this male-dominated society. I feel like we could achieve much more if we work together rather than against each other. <sighs> Nura, Nura. Yeah. <sighs> Girl, I... Honestly, listen, Nura's trying because me, there's no yes. way. <laughs> there is absolutely no way. I'm cooking and you're not eating, I'm leaving. <laughs> like, so, yeah. Oh. This is But What Do I Know podcast with Chit Suzanne, a space for affirming, for learning, and for healing. A podcast and community where we're exploring our But What Do I Know moments in hopes that it helps you, the listener, overcome yours. You ready? Welcome everyone to the But What Do I Know podcast. I'm your host, Chid Suzanne, and I just want to welcome you to another episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm feeling so good. And whoo, y'all, we are celebrating 100,000 downloads of the But What Do I Know podcast in what, 45, 46 episodes across three years, three seasons. We did that. We did that. If you follow us on Instagram, you would have seen I posted about it. I've posted some stories about it and did a little bit of a celebration with you all. So I just want to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You know, thank you all who listened, who have shared, who have commented, who have subscribed. Like I'm just excited for where this podcasting journey is going to take take me and, you know, as I'm meeting people along the way and building friendships and meeting business partners and so on. So I'm thrilled. I'm excited. Thank you all for all the support. Like for real, for real. <laughs> I do not take it for granted because this podcast wouldn't grow if y'all didn't listen. So I definitely, 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 I'm just so full of gratitude. You know, with that being said, if this is your first time and, you know, you just happen to stumble upon this episode and you're like, ooh, 100K, girl. Yes, you know, welcome. You're part of our in the know community now, you know, stay, stay for the full episode. Enjoy this episode. Go ahead and binge the other ones. Get into it. 
If it's your first time and, you know, you're checking us out and you're enjoying what you're listening to, you like it, please go ahead and give us, you know, a five star rating or review, you know, on Apple podcast or Spotify, whichever it is that you you listen. Um, I must say the American listeners are killing it. We're at, I think, 78 ratings and reviews right now on the American side. Canadian listeners, I'm sorry, I'm going to need y'all to step it up a little bit. We're at what, like 43? I would like us to get to about 50 on the Canadian side by the end of the year. And on the American side, I would like us to get to about 100. And again, listen, y'all, I'm not greedy, but these numbers, people look at these numbers and it also is used, you know, in terms of the algorithm and what these these streaming platforms push. And the more that you listen and you rate and you review, it just lets these algorithms know, hey, people are actually listening. People are reviewing. People are interacting. Keep pushing it to other people, you know, keep pushing it to other potential listeners. And it just helps us to continue to grow. So, you know, if you got a little bit of time, you know, go ahead and leave us a rating or review. Of course, you know, if you want to see all the BTS, you want to see the guest takeovers, the reels um some you know bts of of myself and our guests recording go ahead and follow us on instagram at bwdik podcast if you want to check out some reels and some visuals you can go ahead and follow us on tiktok as well at bwdik podcast so those are all the you know different avenues that you can stay connected with myself with the podcast you know to interact and engage with us and again y'all i'm just so grateful i am thankful and um and yeah oof <laughs> Just so full of gratitude today. Uh, before we go into our Cluent segment, I just want to say that I think part of the reason I'm so full of gratitude is because I just came back from New York, which is why this podcast episode is a little bit late. I just got back from New York. And as part of that, I had, you know, a podcast meetup and brunch with some other podcasters in New York. And I just want to say, y'all, like, sisterhood heals. Okay. Sisterhood is amazing. Sometimes this this journey of content creation and podcasting and entrepreneurship has felt a little bit lonely. And I felt like I've had to do a lot of thinking for things and strategizing on my own and just being surrounded by like, like-minded women who are on the same venture and journey was just like, y'all, we got this, you know? So I'm just definitely feeling just so, you know, full of gratitude. I'm feeling thankful. I'm feeling inspired. Like I can really, really, really keep going. Like I can kill it. So I'm grateful to those to those beautiful ladies. If you go on our Instagram page, you can see all the reels and the visuals about that brunch. And you can definitely be connected with those podcasters because you're doing such, such, such amazing work um, as well. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get into our current segment for this episode. So I got a few things that I would like y'all to clue into this week before we get into our main segment conversation. But my list is looking light and it's looking fun. So let's go ahead and get into this before we go ahead and um, and get into our chat with our guest. So firstly, you know, if you are on any sort of social media platform this past week, you've probably seen that Usher, yes, the Usher Raymond um, will be performing the Apple Music halftime show for the Super Bowl next year in February. So y'all, I'm excited. I feel like it is much deserved. I feel like for legacy artists that are already established, doing the halftime show, the Super Bowl is sort of like that additional like 
thing that they want to reach and they want to accomplish. So I'm super excited for that. I know Usher's going to kill it. The clips from the Vegas residency have been amazing. So I'm looking forward to this. On top of that, his album Coming Home will be coming out, I believe, just after his performance at the Super Bowl halftime show. So the album is definitely, I think it's available for pre-order now, but it'll be coming out just after his performance at the Super Bowl. And then I'm hearing rumblings of a tour, which after the Vegas residency, y'all, I don't want to miss that tour. I, I got to be there. So I am, <laughs> when I say I'm starting to put away my Usher books aside, because <laughs> I, I can't miss that. I got to, I got to see Usher. I feel like, and he's getting to that point in his career where I feel like we might see him for a couple more years and then he might start to take longer breaks in between and maybe reduce the amount of performances he does. So I definitely would like to catch him next year if he goes on tour. But yeah, I'm so excited. Usher, you know, much deserved. Can't wait to see your Super Bowl halftime performance. All right. And then we're going to get local here in the city of Toronto. You know, I love curating little lists of things that are happening. Um, this week, I want to share a few concerts that are either on sale right now or will be um, coming on sale shortly or are happening this fall. So the first one, this is a big one. Burna Boy is coming back to Toronto and I'm so excited because it's been a minute. He came last year, but it was part of a festival. So it wasn't the full performance. It wasn't a full set. He didn't come in his live band. Like it just wasn't the Burna Boy show that we all want to see, you know? Because he will definitely pull out all stops, the instrumentals, the drums, the... Yeah, he puts on a show. He puts on a show. So I'm excited. So those tickets are on sale right now. If you listen to this podcast at the time that it comes out, they're on sale right now. The dates are February February 24th and February 25th. It's a Saturday and a Sunday. So next year, but they're on sale right now. So if you're a Burner Boy fan, go ahead, get yourself to Ticketmaster right now and get those tickets because they are moving fast. I've got mine. I'm excited. Um, They're definitely a little bit more expensive than what I was expecting for Burner Boy. But, you know, now that he's he's done, you know, Madison Square Garden and he's selling out stadiums and arenas in Europe, I know, you know, yesterday's price is not today's price. So I definitely, I definitely get that. But yeah, go ahead, get your tickets for Burner Boy. He'll be in Toronto February 24th and 25th of next year, but the tickets are on sale now. Um, Adekunle Gold is coming. He'll be playing at Rebel October 3rd. Those tickets are on sale. I think they might actually be sold out or the majority of the cheaper tickets are probably gone by now because it's so it's so soon but yeah they can only go to be here as well and lastly is ray british r&b singer ray will be in toronto october 7th playing at history those tickets are on sale now as well so if you're interested in any of these artists go ahead and uh, purchase your tickets all right so we've talked performances and concerts let's get into some tv so one of my favorite TV shows, The Morning Show, is back. It's season three and I'm cut up and I am loving it so far. So season one was a really good season because it's sort of um essentially the show depicts a lot of the behind the scenes and happenings at, you know, these broadcasting networks, TV networks, and just you get to see all the drama, the mess that happens behind the scenes. Not to spoil it for you, but season one was really pivotal because it was also sort of filmed and recorded at the height of the Me Too movement in 2019, 2020. So you also got to see what takes place in corporate settings as it pertains to, you know, trigger warning, but sexual assault, misconduct, harassment, and all of that, right? So it was really, it was a really well done season one. Season two was okay. And then season three, I can see they're sort of shifting and tackling themes of diversity in the workplace, pay gaps, 
It's really interesting. So um, yeah, if you're into that kind of stuff, you're into workplace dramas and corporate drama, that kind of stuff, go ahead and check it out. The Morning Show, it's really good. And listen, the next recommendation that I have for y'all is <laughs> none other than Love is Blind season five. Love is Blind is back. They are just giving us back to back to back seasons because season four with Jackie and Marshall was just earlier this year. But I'm not complaining because when I got nothing else to watch, I know that I can lean on Love is Blind. So season five is here. So far, I'm enjoying it. I'm not going to spoil it, but all I will say is pay attention to Uche, Lydia, and Aaliyah. Yes, I believe that's her name. Yeah, Lydia, Aaliyah, and Uche. Pay attention to the little storyline they have developing around those three. Um, Go ahead and watch it. Let me know what you think about the show. Let me know if you're enjoying this season. You know, hit me up um, on the podcast Instagram page at BWDIK Podcast and we can definitely get into it more. But yeah, those are my TV recommendations this week. The Morning Show and Love is Blind season five. All right. So with that, we're going to go ahead and get into our main segment conversation with our guest. This conversation sort of wraps up our September sexual health month conversations. And, you know, like I said, these conversations are important wherever you are in your journey as it pertains to sex and sexual health. It's important that, you know, you're able to have access to these conversations. This is a particularly interesting one for me because as an African woman living in the West, I'm always interested to know, you know, how sex and sexuality are talked about, you know, on the continent of Africa and throughout the diaspora. And I read this book that was written by our guest and it was amazing. And I was like, I absolutely have to talk to her. So listen, y'all, let's just go ahead and get into it. This one is juicy. It's grown. It's raw. And I think y'all are going to love it. So let's go ahead and get into our main segment. So for our main segment for this episode, we are going to be continuing and wrapping up our conversations for Sexual Health Month. And um, we have an amazing guest today, all the way from Ghana. Uh, and I'm so excited because, you know, this book that she, you know, authored and curated is amazing. And after reading it and listening to it, because I also got the audiobook, I was like, yeah, I need to sit down with her. So listeners, today we have Nana Dakwa Sechema. And Nana Dakwa is a feminist activist, writer, and blogger. She's the co-founder of Adventures from the Bedrooms of African Women, an award-winning blog that focuses on African women, sex, and sexualities. And of course, in addition to this, she's also the author of the very book that we're going to be talking about today, The Sex Lives of African Women, which is a collection of you know stories from about 31 African women on the continent and throughout the diaspora. And it just captures, you know, the richness of, you know, when we talk about sex positivity amongst African women. So welcome, Aquaba, all the way from Ghana. I'm excited <laughs> <laughs> to talk thank to you. you. So thank I'm you so much. I'm excited to talk to you too. Thank you. No, absolute pleasure. It's great to be here. Yes, yes. So, you know, like I mentioned, I found this book. I don't know how I found it. I think through Bookstagram. Instagram is a really good way to, you know, sort of find books. So I found the book. My friend and I, she's she's Congolese as well. And, you know, we read the book for our bookstagram page and we're like, 
I was like, no, 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 no. I have to reach out to her for the podcast. This book is, is juicy. Some of the stories I couldn't believe. I was like, she got African women to tell her this. We need to talk. So, you know, and I think what kind of surprised me a little bit was the transparency. And of course, the anonymity helps, but it's still bold nonetheless. So, you know, I'm just curious to know, you know, what made you, what inspired you to write this book and how has the journey of writing this book been? So you mentioned earlier, I'm also co-founder of a platform called Adventures from the Bedrooms of African Women. Mm -hmm. And when my co-founder Malaika and I started that blog, we were sharing our own personal experiences around sex and sexuality. So I could have a sexual encounter, say this evening, and by tomorrow morning, it'll be up on the blog, right? Okay. And so I... <laughs> and so I was sharing very intimate um, parts of my life. And what would happen is women would read those stories you know, and message me and tell me about their own experiences. Mm. And I started to encourage them to submit their own stories for the blog. Over time, we grew a very vibrant community. There were so many women I had never, ever met. And I even gave them their own usernames and passwords to the blog because wow. I couldn't keep up with the demand to post their stories. Wow. And I think, That's yeah, having done that for like, at the time that I said, at the time that I was working on the book, like close to a decade, I had built up trust with a lot of women. And I think I had also learned how to speak to people about sex in a way where they felt, you know, they could open up to me. And also because I'd shared my own experiences, they knew that I was like the kind of person who wouldn't judge them, whatever the experience had been. And I think that's how I got people to open up. The fact that I myself have been open about my own sexual experiences and just in a sense had the practice of speaking to people for many, many years about sex. And I think also because we live in societies where even today, you know, we're not really encouraged to speak openly about sex and sexualities. People actually found it very helpful to have a one-to-one -one with someone, you know, telling them about the experiences they've been through. I think for a lot of people, it's, you know, helpful to process with somebody else, to share, to talk. Um, you know, the challenging bit was, of course, you also had people who hadn't spoken about traumatic experiences and were speaking to me about those traumatic experiences for the very first time, which was you know, somewhat difficult to hold, especially if you had many of such stories in a short period yeah. of time. Mm -hmm. But in general, also being, an, also being in a feminist, having been active in African feminist spaces for a while, I think there was a way in which I could also hold people's trauma as well as hold people's joy and pleasure. Mm, the balance of it. Yeah. So then what has the journey been from, you know, writing the book, the book is out, it's doing well, where, you know, You've had several events related to it in the UK. I'm sure you've had some, you know, in Ghana. So what has the reception around the book and that journey been like post-writing? The reception has been extremely positive. Okay. I think the thing that makes me, yeah, the thing that makes me very happy is how accessible the book is on the African continent, mm. you know, um, because my publishers are... One is in the UK, that's Dialogue Books, shout out Dialogue Books. And then in the US, the incredible Astro House. And so, you know, once I got my book deal, I was a little bit worried. Um, I was like, how can I ensure people on the continent get my book? But my UK publisher, who is the one who um, has the rights for the Commonwealth, and you know, these are colonial constructs mm -hmm. <laughs> that includes many parts of Africa, you know, they have been amazing in ensuring that the books get to whoever wants them and whoever orders them. And I think for me, part of what has been impressive is how in some countries, African women have organized to get their books, you mm -hmm. know? Um, so I remember there was a time where we were a bit hesitant about, or I wasn't hesitant, 
my publisher was a bit hesitant about sending the books to Uganda. Right. Because they felt like, oh, it could be banned that. in Uganda. Yeah. And Ugandan feminists organized and were like, what do you mean? You know, this is our book. We are paying you for these books and we are bulk ordering. Send it to us. And they did. And, and you know, so even wow. my publisher has been like, wow, you really changed like our, our distribution and the number of new accounts we've had from the continent. So mm. that for me has been amazing. Women want the book. Women have been buying the book. Women have been discussing the book. Men have also been reading the book. As they should. Buying it for women. Yes, as they should. Buying it for the women in their lives. You know, that's what they tend to tell me when they come to book events. Oh, I'm getting this from my sister and my friends, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so. <laughs> Why are you laughing, Chibi? Because. Mm-hmm, mm, I bet you're yeah, you're like so skeptical. <laughs> I bet you're buying it for your sister. Meanwhile, I was like, they're flipping through it at nighttime. <laughs> I know, right? No, the different reception of men versus women has been interesting because women tend to post about it publicly and read it publicly and men tend to DM me and tell me, oh, I really enjoyed your book. Yeah, yeah. I'm not surprised. That sounds about right. <laughs> sounds about right. Um, one thing you mentioned, you know, the accessibility on the African continent. I'm really happy about that because I was actually going to ask you, you know, about you know, Uganda, the reception locally in Ghana, you know, West Africa, d- throughout the continents. So I'm really glad that women are organizing and coming together. And, you know, you're absolutely right, because a lot of times, sometimes even when we create products or things that are meant to be received or primarily for the continent, it becomes accessible everywhere else, but on the continent. So I'm glad that the women that want to get it can get their hands on the book. Um, I want to talk about the term African women. And sort of your, I want you to sort of explain your understanding of it, because when I saw the title, being an African woman living in the West, I was like, okay, this is for the women on, this is for the women on the continent. I was expecting to read stories from just women on the continent, but I was actually pleasantly surprised. And I actually like it, the fact that you included women from the continent and throughout the diaspora. So what made you want to include the the whole diaspora in its entirety, or most of it, you know, at least? rather than just, you know, women on the continent? Yeah, for me, it was really important to do that. I consider myself a pan-African, right? Mm-hmm. And so really, I think of myself almost like an African first before I think of myself as a Ghanaian. Um, and for me, being African is about continental Africans and in many ways, sometimes centering them because, you know, our continent has been so dissented and so marginalized and, you know, all discriminated against. So it's about continental Africans but it's also about the Africans who have been displaced for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. Whether those reasons is because of slavery, whether it's because of colonization, whether it's because of migration, you know. Um, and as a Pan-Africanist, it's important for me to, in a sense, as much as possible, try and bring Africans together wherever they may be. Mm-hmm. And and for me, it was important to, you know, not think of Africans as only continental Africans, but center continental Africans in the story, yeah. you know, as well as people from the diaspora. So it's why I also included stories from people who, you know, are from Barbados mm. and um, are from Costa Rica. Yes. Because many years ago, I did not know that we actually had black people in Latin America, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. people who are Afro-descendants who actually feel very proud of their African identity. Yeah. And so for me, it was really important in a book that's about Africa mm-hmm. to include people you know, from the continent, wherever they may be right now, for the variety of reasons I mentioned earlier. Yeah, from the continent, wherever they may be right now is the key, 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 key yes. part of that. Wow, no, that's yeah. that's really good. And I was happy, like, as I was, I was like, oh, Costa Rica, 
the Caribbean, even Toronto. Like there were so many places mentioned that I was like, okay, I see, I see what this is doing. It's really good because wherever you are reading the book, you're drawing lines and you're making connections. And you're also, you know, you may be relating to someone in a completely different part of the world. And it's like, okay, it draws us all together. So I think it was a really, 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 really good addition to the collection to do that. Yeah. Thank you. So, you know, my podcast is called, But What Do I Know? And that's because, you know, throughout life, I feel like I've found myself asking, but what do I know? And I've had to kind of overcome a lot of moments where you're doubtful about your ability to do things or your ability to get through different phases of life. So I'm wondering, you know, did you have any moments where you were like, what do I know about how African women are going to receive this or about the current sex lives of African women? Did you have any hesitations going in or even maybe your ability as a writer to curate these stories together? And then, you know, if you did, how did you get past that point to say, nah, I'm, I'm going to do this? So in terms of the first book, I didn't really have any hesitation about what do I know about African women and the experiences of sex mm-hmm. because of the format I had chosen, right? right? And the format was to speak to people about their lives. And again, as a feminist, that's part of my, my politics to value women's knowledge, which includes the stories that women tell and their own experiences of their life. I think that's valuable knowledge. And so because that was, in a sense, the methodology I'd chosen, you know, I wasn't hesitant about, oh, like, what do I know about African women's sex and sexuality? Mm-hmm. Because it wasn't about me and my knowledge. It was really about speaking to people who are experts of their own lives. I think what right. I didn't know at the time was, will I get published? You know, mm. am I ever going to find a home for this? Because especially as an African based on the continent, it's not very easy to get a publishing deal. So that's mm. what I didn't know. So there was a, an amount of faith, you know, you have to have and hold while still working on the book, while still hoping that at the right time, you will find an agent who will then be the person to get your publishing deal. So that was the more challenging part of the process, just then committed to this goal of writing this book, you know, mm-hmm. um, and because my goal was always to be traditionally published. I didn't want to self-publish and trusting that mm-hmm. at the right time, I will meet an agent. And, and I was lucky, you know, um, yeah, I was lucky. Even when I hear people's stories of how they got agents, um, I think the agent I have now was like maybe maximum the fourth agent I reached out to. Um, and, you know, one of the things I've learned, especially when you're like, okay, I don't know, is just to expand your network and just to, especially as a writer, in 2012, I did the Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie workshop in and in Nigeria, and there was a piece of advice she gave that really just stayed with me. She said, become friends with other writers. Be happy for other writers when they do well, mm. you know, because, you know, then you too, your time will come. And so I remember mm. coming back from mm-hmm. that workshop and then deliberately making an effort to become friends with writers. It may sound very, I don't know. But then, of course, if you reach out to people... Once you hang out with them, you realize the people you naturally connect with, right? And over a number of years, exactly, yeah. I built my network of writer friends. And it's just through a writer friend that I found my agent. Because this was a writer who got mm-hmm. published, and I don't mind mentioning his name. I'm sure he wouldn't mind. Um, he might feel a bit embarrassed. Um, Suleiman Adonai, he's the author of Silence is mm-hmm. My Mother's Tongue. So when I saw his book was okay. published, I reached out to him and I was like, how did he get published? You know, can you introduce me to your publisher? Even though I knew the process was to like look for an agent and he was like, oh, it's better for you to look for an agent first. 
you know, he reached out to a particular agent who he thought might be a good fit for me. That agent was mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. you know, your work is interesting, but it's a bit too academic for me. I'm sure you find oh. a path to publishing. If you don't, come back to me in a year's time. And then later, Suleiman reached out to me. Oh, there was this agent who came to my literary festival. Should I connect to you? And I was like, yes. You know, and that was Robert Kasky, who's my agent today and really has been just the best possible agent to work with. Mm. So I think the thing you should do when you don't know what to do is to build your relationships with people who mm-hmm. have done what you want to do. Yeah. And, you know, at the appropriate time, ask them for advice. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and hear what the advice is and follow it to the best of your ability. No, so that's really that good. That would be my tip. Yeah, that's really good. I feel like whenever I have, especially black women on the podcast and they talk about what their stories are like, their but what do I know moments, a lot of the time it's like, you know, having confidence in yourself, building relationships. And for you, it was building relationships with writers, having your community to kind of, you know, continue to encourage you and push you. So, no, that's a really good, um, really good way to, way to look at it and to approach it too. So thank you for that. I think... I think for me, to be honest, every single thing I've achieved in my life has been because mm-hmm. of community, has mm. been because of my relationships with people. And I really invest a lot in, in building relationships with people. And, you know, it's not <sighs> something you do like cynically with the goal of, oh, one day I will need something for you. But you just have to do it from the bottom of your heart. And somehow it just reaps results. Exactly. You know? Exactly. That's true. Okay. So I want to get into the book and then we're going to get into some parts of the, into some part of the book and you know read um little excerpts so i want to know it seems like you know you had an idea of the sex lives of african women already before you wrote this because of the blog and so on i knew on. our sex lives were a lot more fun and more freaky than the world generally portrayed us to be right because you for a fact already what because when i read this book I was like, I'm not surprised that this exists, but the lack of representation yes. that there is about this and yes. the way that the world portrays it. And also, I think also experience too. Like I'm Nigerian. Mm. I, mm-hmm. I'm not having sex conversations with my family back home or the auntie mm-hmm. that like, or the, you know, the, the elders or the older generation. I think we were, we're still very conservative for the most part. Mm. So mm-hmm, I feel like mm-hmm. even women that are going through this or leave, living these lives, it's on the down low. No one is really coming out to yeah. the community to talk about this, right? So yeah. did you have like, you know, I knew you, I know you knew it was you know, more fun, more freaky, more lively, but were there certain like assumptions or notions that you had going into, you know, speaking with these women? I don't know if I had notions or assumptions per se mm-hmm. i think the thing that was a shock to me wasn't necessarily a positive thing the thing that was a shock to me was how many people had experienced child sexual abuse yeah that i didn't expect and you know when i think about it i'm like okay maybe that was a bit naive right mm-hmm. um but that was that was a shock to me that i didn't expect yeah yeah, yeah. when i read that too and of course like you expect to hear those stories but as i was reading they were they were hard to to read, but it really painted a picture of the the women's experiences, you know? Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, have you received any sort of like pushback from individuals or media on this book locally or internationally? <laughs> 
No, I haven't. It's it's so interesting the way the book is moving through the world. That's good. I think the book is moving through the world in the way where it attracts the right energy and the right people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I also, I think somehow, you know, usually I get asked, do you get trolls? I don't feel like I get trolls. But I also own that I am, you know, a very privileged middle-class African woman mm. who in a certain way is able to live in a space that I've created for myself. And you know what I mean? Like I work from home. Yeah. I don't, you know, I work for myself now. Um, And even before I started working for myself, I worked for feminist organizations. So I wasn't working for a kind of institution that would be like, oh, 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 we do this kind of context. Right, we can't, exactly, yeah. So there are ways in which I am protected Mm -hmm. because of my socioeconomic status. And also, frankly... There's sometimes a media I just want to engage in just because mm-hmm. I know that that is what would attract negativity to me. Yeah. You know, so and publicizing the book in Ghana and also to be honest, I haven't had to do very much to publicize it. It's constantly sold out. So it's not like I need to go do a lot of media interviews to publicize it. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I have done probably literally one radio interview with a friend of mine who's a host on the radio show. Right. You know, I have done a couple of book events and literary events where the crowd is generally a progressive one. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not scared of, in a sense, pushback or resistance, but I won't go and put myself in the face of it just because yeah. I like to conserve my energy mm-hmm. and I like to focus on the people who are interested in creating a better world for everybody. So yeah. I don't give attention to trolls. Mm-hmm. Um, if they come for me, I will fight, fight back. back yeah. sure. I'm not, I'm not polite, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, generally I can ignore people. Even when people say negative comments, I remember there was a time I did an interview in the BBC and then somebody tweeted something. I can't even remember what they said. I was just like, huh? Mm. Okay. Just move on. Right? You know, <laughs> The fact that you're on the BBC, like, hello? (laughs) Hello? Like, where am I going to waste my time with you? (laughs) Yeah, like, please. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so that was what kind of surprised you the most. Did anything else, you know, stand out or made you go, hmm, I wasn't expecting that as you were, you know? I think what I generally loved is it felt like a lot of women were on a journey of self-discovery. Right. Yeah. A lot of women were like, everything I was told about sex when I was growing up, mm, that doesn't feel accurate. I want to find myself. I want to like discover pleasure in my body. I am going to unlearn, you know, some of what I was brought up being told. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to figure things out for myself. That yes. I mean, like, that was what I was kind of, I was drawn to as well. And also the amount of women that would get married or be in relationships with men mm-hmm. and then discover themselves and then get up and leave and then date a woman or become pansexual or I was just like wow all in like the span (laughs) of a few years I was like okay (laughs) so I was like African women are really experimenting but you know before reading this I didn't really it was hard for me to kind of conceptualize that sort of like progression and the fact Mm. that the way that marriage is even talked about especially on the continent there's no room for further exploration beyond what you're in you know so it was really that was the part that I was like wow okay cool (laughs) 
I mean, the thing that is interesting to me in terms of like the example you gave, right, of how marriage is currently framed on the continent. Yeah. The way in which marriage is framed now is actually relatively new. This is something that came with colonization. Right. You know, yeah. it's not how we yeah. were right. pre-colonial. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. that's another thing that people had to recognize. These structures and systems that were being presented with as yeah. natural, mm-hmm. it's not actually natural. It's man-made, mm-hmm. right? A lot of it got, you know, created by the colonizers and we <laughs> have taken it on. And are just taking it to the nth degree due to religious fundamentalism. Lip and that's fam, what it is. You know when they say you've carried my matter and put it on your head? Like, uh-huh. that's what we, that's what we basically, did. Basically. <laughs> that's what we did. Oh, God. And yes. we're just running with it. So what interviews or stories were like highlights for you or surprise you the most? I'm not going to say which ones are your favorite because <laughs> we don't want to get you in trouble. But... <laughs> Which one sort of stood out to you or highlights that, you know, we can talk about? Um, For people who haven't read it, you know, um, Nura is a middle-class African woman. I would say somebody who is very much like myself. Mm -hmm. And I was like, when I met her, surprised at the choice that she had made Mm. to become the third wife of a man and literally married that man before she met him. I was just like, whoa. Right? Like, you know? (laughs) Yeah, N- Nura is on my list too. <laughs> yes, so I loved Nura's story. I really, really love Alexa's story. Okay, you know because this is uh, Alexis. Just to like, again for people who don't know the book or won't remember names, um, when I interviewed her, she was seventy-one, African American woman yes. of Caribbean heritage, and her sixties fell in love with yes. another woman. They are still together today. I was shocked. Still having this. an incredible sex life. And I'm just like, yeah, that's how I want to be when I'm 70. And also, like, you know, for me, the message in that story is don't feel like you need to be in this, like, loving relationship. Or if you're not in a relationship with somebody, like, by your 30s, your life is over. Mm -hmm. She fell in love with her partner when she was 60, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, I remember reading that. There's no time limit on anything. Right? I remember reading that and being like, first of all, how did you even, like, the way that you were connecting to these women and the way that you either through a friend or through some sort of other like mutual mutual in your network and i remember reading that just being like wow people in their 60s are still living like i'm scared you know <laughs> to cross 45 <laughs> and people are here thriving and enjoying their 60s i was like okay hmm, okay <laughs> yeah exactly like and i feel like also like in general we're made to feel like somehow as you get older, you're no longer sexually attractive. Yeah, especially and, women. You know, people like Alexis tell you that it's a lie, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was a story I really liked. Um, gosh, there's so many. Uh, also, Solange's story really stands out for me. Mm-hmm. Solange is a trans woman, yes. originally from Rwanda, you know, and her story took to us through Congo, through Canada, mm-hmm. back to the continent. And I feel like if you read or listen to Solange's story, you will understand how a trans woman has always been a woman, mm. no matter the body that they, you know, initially appeared and if, they, if they've chosen to change their body too much, yeah. you know, who they are on the inside. Um, yeah. And so that for me was also a another highlight. story that was really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Those, those reading those stories, um, especially, Solange is just I was like this is so so bold and I want like mm-hmm. I really like this because I want more representation of that because I think mm-hmm. that 
a lot of the times, like when we talk about sexuality and, you know, in its different forms and and ways on mm. the con, like sometimes it's just so ignorant. Like even with mm. there was a recent story um, that I was reading or came across on Twitter of the the young woman who was denied being called to the bar in Ghana because she yes, is yes. because she's in a relationship with a woman and she's a YouTuber. Yeah. So you know through them finding her YouTube content, they told her you know yeah. we, we, what was it, the term was I think her content was offensive is what is a term that was used and I was just like. Man, the ignorance that we approach these conversations with, yeah. it's annoying. It's annoying. It so, really is. Yeah. So the, I'm like, I want to see more representation. And I'm really happy. Like, I saw a lot of young Ghanaians rallying. Yes. You know, and I'm seeing a lot of it now, even in Uganda, even in Nigeria. Like, people mm-hmm. are coming together. And I'm like, look, like, mm-hmm. so, yeah, no, those the yes. stories were important. Yes, mm-hmm. I totally agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally mm-hmm. agree. And then the other one, um, Estelle's story for me, <laughs> when mm. she went from being married to Olamide, <laughs> um, and then to sort of alluding to leaving the marriage and then identifying as pansexual, yeah. I was like, girl, you've done it all. <laughs> 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 but also what surprised me, and maybe this is just my understanding of Nigerian men, is mm. how he was understanding of it. Like, it was like, you know, you've mentioned mm. this before, you've mentioned your hesitation. Yes. You've mentioned who you are and your exploration. So I understand yeah. it. I was like, oh, okay. All right. I got <laughs> You know, I had to give him his, his due as well. So yeah, that was a yes. really, it was a really interesting story as well for me. A star story was yes. cool. I mean, I think sometimes people assume what the reactions of their partners would be mm-hmm. to them actually being open and honest about whatever it is that they desire, right? And I think sometimes we're unfair to our partners if we don't give them the chance, yeah. if we don't really share who we are and show who we are. And, you know, Mm -hmm. um, see what their reaction is. Of course, I think people have to judge for themselves how safe they feel in doing so. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. But I think sometimes, you know, give it a go and and see what happens. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we're going to get into Nora's story because, you know, like you mentioned, she starts your book for a reason. And uh, we're going to get into two snippets from her story because the first one I could relate to. And then the second part just had me like, hmm, girl. So, listeners, this is Nora's story from, you know, the sex lives of African women, self-discovery, freedom, and healing. Okay, so, my sister wives and I have nothing in common. Well, that's not exactly true. We have his excellency in common. (laughs) We're all married to the same man. Ishmael and I met in 2018 on Muzzmatch, a dating app for Muslims looking to get married. By then, I had been a convert for about four years, and I knew that I needed to expand my circle of potential suitors. I wasn't born into a Muslim family, and so I couldn't rely on my own networks to meet the kind of man that I wanted to be with. The Muslim men I met in my own country, Kenya, were incredibly conservative, and I wanted to meet a man who was more like me, well-traveled and with a global view of the world. When Ishmael and I started chatting, our conversations felt very easy. I found myself laughing a lot. He was also respectful. He didn't even hit on me. Around the same time my aunt lives in Canada, around the same time my aunt who lives in Canada had started a relationship with a Congolese man. She told me how much he adored her and how loved she felt. I started to wonder if this was just how francophone men were. Then Ishmael told me he wanted to travel to Nairobi to see me. I told him that I didn't want to meet him unless we were meeting as husband and wife. 
And so and mom married us online. This is where I was like, girl. I mean, I've watched 90 Day Fiance, you know, all the love and marriage shows, but this is the true. (laughs) 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 This is the true one right here. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. (sighs) Wow. Okay. When we met, I thought his pictures and even our video chats had not captured him accurately. He looks like the stereotype of a Senegalese man, six feet tall and skinny. The phrase melanin poppin' was coined to describe people like him. He also had this air of a quiet, confident masculinity. He practices martial arts and is really strong. We wouldn't think he was in his late 40s if you met him. That first time we met, we spent four days together in a hotel. All we did was fuck and pray. Girl, amen to that. (laughs) (laughs) That was really important to me. Sensuality and spirituality are two sides of the same coin. And I wanted to be with a partner that I could learn the faith with from a place of curiosity and not oppression. I found Islam in my late 30s. I had been searching for a spiritual practice that spoke to who I am as a Black African woman. And in the Islamic faith, I found one that also spoke to the social and environmental justice issues that are important to me. So after I read this, I said, Nura, you are me and I, you are me, I am you right here. Because that duality of spirituality and sensuality Mm. is just, yes. And even in the conversations I have with my girlfriends, it's like, yes, you want to be tapped into your spirituality, but it's like, I still want to get down. Like I'm still, you know, I think (laughs) you're two sides of a coin and I just think, you know, the notion that you got to repress one to achieve the Mm. other is so, (laughs) you know, for lack of a better word. And and when I read this and she's like, girl, all we did was fucking pray. I said, Nura, live your life. (laughs) (laughs) So that right there, I was clapping for Nura. I was really enjoying that part. Um, and then yes. we're going to we're going to skip towards the end to where I said, OK, you know, it was a little too good to be true. Nora. Um, mm. So this is page 14 of the book for listeners. Um, it says everything centers around the arrival of his excellency. First of all, sorry, his excellency is such a interesting. But she, also, she was saying that in a kind of tongue, tongue in cheek way. OK, right? like, yeah. I spent mm, his excellency. OK, got exactly. it. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> OK, <laughs> so he spends two days in each household. And so the day before his arrival, I spend the day preparing. Whichever wife he's staying with is responsible for cooking for the entire household. And so I'll go to the market with my domestic staff and we'll buy enough food to feed the household for two days. The first time it was my turn to cook, I had someone make me cheb, a popular Senegalese rice dish. And then I made some mashed potatoes and chicken and sauteed a range of vegetables, eggplant, carrots, and French beans. That's the kind of food we eat back home in Nairobi. Then I served every, everything in one large communal dish because in Senegal, everyone except for the men of the house eats out of one bowl. All the wives and children had arrived by then. And so I and so I set an individual plate for my husband and went to inform him that dinner was ready. When I came back, half the wives and children had already left. They didn't even touch the food I had spent hours preparing. This had happened time and time again. It really gets to me because meals are not just about what goes in your stomach. The process of cooking a meal is about creativity 
and the act of feeding others is about nourishment. When you spend over three hours cooking a meal and people come to eat, there should be conversation, laughter, and joy. Instead, what I experience is very sterile. There is silence. Some people leave straight away when they see the meal. Others stay and pick at their plates. It's gotten to a stage where I'm even I'm even beginning to I'm even beginning to wonder if my husband eats my food out of mere politeness. One time my husband was unwell. He was staying with one of his other wives at a time and she had made him a meal that was supposedly good for his health. He was due to visit me next and so I asked her if she could tell me the name of the dish she had made. She said no. In all of this my husband has said nothing. He's either oblivious to what is going on or has an attitude of, I'll let you women figure it all out amongst yourselves. I also don't feel like I can raise this directly with him. I've told him in general terms that I find living here challenging, but it's not like I can say, your wives are being bitchy towards me. I'm very much aware that I'm the newest member of this household. I know that I'm the one who's supposed to figure out a way to fit in and that I should be grateful that they have allowed me to come into their lives. I started out expecting there to be kindness between the wives. We're all women from this continent. Yes, we have different levels of privilege, but we all live in this male-dominated society. I feel like we could achieve much more if we work together rather than against each other. <sighs> Nura, Nura. Yeah. <sighs> Girl, I, honestly, listen, Nura's trying because me, there's no way. Yes. <laughs> there is absolutely no way. I'm cooking and you're not eating. I'm leaving. <laughs> like, so, yeah. Oh, and I just. Obviously, this is not something that I could directly relate to, but the understanding of mm. trying to make it work and. Yes. And of course, you know, the nonchalantness that I'm sure the man has of, you know, I'm sure mm -hmm. you, you women work it out. Yes, uh, yes. I felt for her. I really felt for her at this part. Yeah, no, same, same. You know, I think you can't help but feel for her, you know. Um, and yeah, different people probably have different reactions. Yeah, you have this utopian idea right. of, you know, sister wives, and that wasn't the reality. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah, and also to the the competitive nature that then comes with, mm. you know, having multiple mm -hmm. wives. And, mm -hmm. you know, like she said, you know, he was sick. This other wife had prepared him the meal. Mm -hmm. I asked for the recipe. Mm -hmm. She said no. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think mm -hmm. that's also something that I wonder if individuals can ever really fully get across if we're going to sort of be in this sort of a relationship. Like, can we get over that competitive aspect and, you know, Understand, mm -hmm. okay, you bring this and you bring that and you bring this and we're all caring for each other in community. That's what I haven't really seen in, you know, polygamous, you know, marriage or relationship is the communal form. I feel like this sounds like more what I would know, especially being Nigerian. This is mm -hmm. what I know it to be. So, yes, this is more familiar to us. Yeah. But I think this is where for me, polyamorous relationships present a different model, right? Mm -hmm. Where you don't necessarily have um, women competing, a number of women competing for one man's attention and love and desire and everything, you know, um, but non-hierarchical polyamorous relationships, I think show us a different way to be. Yeah. Or show at least a different relationship model is possible. Mm hmm. Yeah. No, that's that's real. Yes. 
That's real. So, listeners, that was Nura's story. If you like what you heard, you know, The Sex Lives of African Women is available wherever you can find books. Um, it's online, so you can get yourself a physical copy. Or if you like to listen, you can also get, you know, the audiobook. Um, I do want to get into, you know, the fact that the book is divided into three sort of portions. Um, self-discovery, freedom, and then healing. So which came first? Did you interview the women and then mm-hmm. see the themes or did you create these themes and then it just happened that the stories fit? <laughs> no, once I'd done about 20 interviews, I started to, you know, like literally I put everybody's name and a little bit about them in a spreadsheet because I was basically mm. looking for patterns. Right. And for me, it felt like, you know, a pattern that really stood out to me was this whole theme of self-discovery that you and I spoke about before mm-hmm. and then the next thing that really jammed out at me was the focus on the need to heal yeah you know all the ways in which people were trying to heal so that's how healing came to me and then there were a couple of people like alexis that we spoke about earlier and i was like oh you guys you forget it out you're the people that we need to be looking at mm-hmm. right as examples of how we get free And so that's basically how I came up with the themes Mm. and saying that, you know, um, I think there's some stories which literally flow between themes. They feel like depending upon when you're reading them, an example of sexual freedom, even if I have it in a self-discovery section, right. 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 Oh, it's in a self-discovery section. You're like, Oh, that could go in healing. Right. So, you know, in a way that was just a way to structure the book. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, for me, what's important is how people connect to the book on an individual level and what they take away from the stories as relevant for them. And I hope that it's a kind of book that people will reread in different seasons of their life mm-hmm. and they might find that there are different messages that resonate to them. Yeah. With them. Mm-hmm. I definitely will be revisiting because I can see how, like for me right now, I think self-discovery is the part that I most relate to because maybe, you know, I'm my mid to late 20s this is what i'm sort of at i'm discovering and i can see myself rereading this again like in a couple years and be like okay like am i you know how is this sort of floating with my with my journey right now so i definitely agree i think it's a book that you don't just read once but you come to it because there's some stories that i don't remember but there's some that stuck out to me for a reason and when i Mm -hmm. read it again another one will Mm -hmm. stick out to me right so yeah definitely um appreciate this so i want to sort of just Talk about the book in the larger context of where we are right now. You know, when we talk about Africa, conversations about sex and sexuality. I feel like, you know, books like these, you know, podcasts like mine, conversations that are being had, like progressive conversations that are being had right now, pushing the narrative forward. But what do you sort of think about? Because I feel like right now there's sort of like a clash or sort of their views are being challenged. So you have the progressive on one side and you have the conservative that want things to stay. And we're not just seeing that only on the continent. We're seeing that in America and their politics of, you know, conservatism, progressives, the left versus the right. So what do you sort of think about, you know, the way that we talk about sex and sexuality and the fight between being progressive? And for us, it's entrenched in our laws too. So that also has to do with how safe people are. Do you think, you know, we're going to see some sort of change in the next 50 years in our lifetime? You know, how are you feeling? Yes, I think this moment can feel particularly hard Mm -hmm. for progressives and for people who have been fighting and doing the work of creating more sex positive spaces. Mm -hmm. But I also think this moment is actually a reaction to the gains we've made, Mm -hmm. right? Um, 
And there's no struggle that is won easily, you know? It's literally called a struggle for a reason. I think for me, what's really important is that we continue building and strengthening our communities, our communities for justice, whatever kind of community that is, whether that's like a feminist community, because that's what I consider like my, you know, like my activist home or Mm -hmm. your local community or even like a network of friends who have the same values and beliefs that you do. I think what's important is to continue strengthening those communities. Um, I think to find ways to be safer there's no such thing as safety mm-hmm. but to find ways to be to be safer um and to just continue to do the work that we've been doing mm-hmm. to the best of our abilities you know to continue to create these spaces like your podcast mm-hmm. where people can have open and honest and frank conversations about sex yeah so i think we just continue doing the work mm-hmm. okay and you know final sort of you know, question for you before we switch segments a little bit. When a woman or any, you know, any individual, when they read this book, what sort of feeling do you want them to sort of like leave with? I want them to leave feeling hopeful mm, and cool. feeling inspired and feeling like, you know what? At any point in time, I can redesign my sex life. Mm, <laughs> because they were doing that in the book. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, and that, you know, um, my choices for my life are legitimate, whatever those choices may be, Mm -hmm. whether that's a choice to be celibate, whether that's a choice to be pansexual, you know, um, and also to recognize that who you are today doesn't have to be who you are tomorrow. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. if whoever you are today is no longer serving you tomorrow. You don't need to stay the same. Yeah. You're allowed to evolve. You're allowed to grow. You're allowed to change your mind, Mm -hmm. you know? Absolutely. Um, And I think just give yourself space to be. Mm -hmm. Give yourself space to be. Exactly. That's really good. Okay. Thank you so much for, you know, for first of all, this this offering, you know, the, the book, it's amazing. Um, what, I have a list of girlfriends that are like, after you're done the book, can you send it to me? My, one of my Ghanaian girlfriends, too, Queen, she's like, after you're done, please send that book to me. I'm like, okay. And she's like, when the episode is out, I want to listen. I was like, don't worry, you will, you will. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we're so grateful. Thank you so much for, you know, for talking, for being on here and for sharing, you know, more thoughts um, about the book. You know, before I let you go, we're going to switch segments a little bit. You know, we love to end off our episode here just on a fun and light notes. So I'm going to ask you, you know, four questions and without thinking too hard, you know, I just want to know the first answer that comes to your mind for each of these questions. So the first one is, um, in your opinion, social media is best used when? (laughs) Social media is best used when you only have a few minutes to kill Mm. and have an app timer. So it locks you out. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah, no, I 100% agree. Or else you'll be scrolling through TikTok for exactly. hours and find yourself going down a rabbit hole. Okay. Um, yes. I think just with your politics and who you are, I think I know your answer to this, but would you rather lose all your money or all your time? <laughs> oh, God. I would say lose all my money. Yes. Because actually, if I have my time, I make more money. money. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, okay. What is one song that, you know, when it comes on, it's like a soundtrack to your life or it's attached to really good memories. Like the song comes on and you're like, ah, I remember the good old times. (laughs) 
Oh God, it'll probably be like a ginger wine song yeah, or something okay. like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ginger wine had you know, the tracks. Yeah, the yes, tracks. Yes. <laughs> okay, and then my last question for you: um, What is the most beautiful place you've ever been to? Oh, I feel like I'm so lucky. I get to go to so many beautiful places. Mm-hmm. I just got back to Ghana yesterday from Tanzania. Oh. I was in Dar es Salaam, um, which is the capital. And, you know, it was just so beautiful. The sea was blue. The sands mm. were white. Um, I just love being by the ocean. So actually, whenever I'm by the ocean, it feels to me like I'm in the most beautiful place mm-hmm. in the world. <laughs> Rightfully so. <laughs> Yeah, Tanzania is on my list. I'm seeing the videos and yeah, yeah, I have to. I strongly recommend it. Strongly. I have to make my way there. See, I'm trying to, I might be in Nigeria at the end of this year. Okay. For, you know, for Christmas, the usual. And then my Ghanaian yes. girlfriend is, you know, she's planning on going to Ghana, but we're watching these flight tickets because they're not cheap <laughs> in crazy. December. No. So we're planning no, to do, yeah. you know, Nigeria, Ghana, and then maybe next year. Should Olua give us more money? I'm hoping to do, yes. you know, South Africa, Tanzania, and, and, hit, nice. and hit more countries. So, yeah, nice. no, I'm excited to travel the continent. It's a place that needs to be just explored and enjoyed, you know? Like, we need we to be enjoying that place. Yes. We have such a beautiful continent, seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm quite lucky. I've, through my work, I've visited definitely every part of the sub region, like every wow. sub region. Mm-hmm. Um, and some countries I go to over and over again, like Kenya. And I yeah, just yeah, it's on my list. Okay, all right. So you know, thank you, Nana Dakwa, once again. I am so appreciative of you being on here. You know, please go ahead and share your socials. Um, you know how people can find you and connect with your work. Uh, before we you know wrap up. Sure. So on Twitter, the handle for my book is Sex Lives Africa. And on Instagram, the handle for the book is The Sex Lives of African Women. My personal handle, so I'm saying Twitter, I should say the platform formerly known as Twitter. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, so on X, I am Nas009, Nas like the rapper. Mm-hmm. And on Instagram, I'm D for Dark, so D F O R D A R K O A. Okay. Yes, and I also have a website, Dakmar the Writer, where all my social media accounts are linked. So you can find me on those are the spaces where I'm active on X and Instagram. Okay. And sometimes LinkedIn. Yeah. yeah. Facebook, I don't know. I can't even get into my Facebook accounts anymore. And I can't <laughs> be bothered with all of the things they keep asking Social media. Me exactly. <laughs> all right. Yes. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast once again. I appreciate you. And honestly, I hope we can do this again. I hope we get more conversations. Maybe when you write a sequel, maybe when you do more things or you're in Toronto, hint, hint, hint. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes to all of them. But I'm working on my second book. It's not a sequel, but it is my second book. So I will oh, be following okay. it to you. in two years yes. time when the book will be out. Amen. In the yes can't wait to hear it can't wait to hear it okay well thank you so much again absolute pleasure Chidi. thank you so that brings us to the end of this episode thank you all for sticking around and listening to my conversation with nana dakwa 
I absolutely loved just how candid she was and just, yeah, like I just love this conversation so much. And I think it's one that I'm going to kind of return to, especially as I keep reading the book, The Sex Lives of African Women. Um, Absolutely loved it. So thank you all for listening to this conversation. Be connected on our Instagram or TikTok at BWDIK Podcast for the BTS, the Reels, might get Nana Dakwa to do a little guest takeover. Who knows? Stay connected, share this episode with someone you feel will enjoy it and maybe needs to hear it. And um, as always, take care of yourself, drink your water, mind the business that pays you. And y'all will hear from me real soon. Bye for now.